Hello, friends. Welcome back to Hermeneutica Etc., where we talk about theology, philosophy, and so forth. I'm your host, Jonathan Dansby. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be bringing you the final installments, uh, the long-awaited final installment of the class that I taught in the spring on the Creed. Um, This class, uh, for the most part, we're trying to uh, tie up a few threads, but also um, answer some questions that are still uh, outstanding uh, for the folks who were in the class. Um, so in in this uh, class session, uh, we talk about um, the plural and the singular discrepancy uh, between Luke Timothy Johnson's own commentary on the Creed uh, and the translation that he's using and the translation that has been approved for use uh, in English um, in uh, the Roman Catholic churches. Uh, and so we're asking the question in that section, um, how we understand the we language in Johnson's case, or the I uh, language, the use of the of that first person singular pronoun, uh, I, in the uh, approved Roman Catholic rite. Um, and uh, as I end up saying, I mean, it's a bit of a preview. Uh, I think it's appropriate, even if we go with the I, we should understand it as an as a corporate uh, or as a yeah as a corporate I, uh, which is kind of the the inverse of uh, the royal we, um, where one person says we. Uh, as a definitive statement. Well, in this case, even if you go with the singular, it, it should be understood as a corporate I. The body of Christ says, I believe. Um, uh, and so the, the question there is how the creed, uh, how and whether the creed uh, succeeds in incorporating individual Christians. Um, we also talk some about how not to critique theological positions. Um uh, I'll leave that one to be a surprise for you uh, when you get there. Uh, we also talk about the relationship some, and this is kind of me uh, very broadly summarizing uh, the next section, where we talk about the creed and churchly authority, um, how it is that ecclesial authority relates to the creed and the creed to those um, authorities. Uh, then we... Uh, move into talking about the marks of the church, um, uh, that the church is Catholic, is, is holy, uh, sorry, is one holy Catholic and apostolic. Those are the four classic marks of the church. Um, and the, the idea that the, ch- that those marks are ideals, um, uh, I think probably best understood as goals uh, rather than as um, unreal uh, things that the church can can never um, get to, uh, but can realize uh, as a goal, as a telos, that those marks actually come out from time to time in the church's life. 
Uh, and, and those marks also display tensions among one another. That's the next thing we talk about. Uh, and uh, toward the end of the uh, conversation, uh, I asked the question and, and we talked some about why we would stick with the church at all. Um, if the church isn't always particularly unified, if it isn't always particularly holy, uh, if it isn't always particularly uh, universal in its expression, and if it isn't always particularly uh, apostolic uh, in its authority and its evangelism, why would we stick with the church at all? Uh, I think that's a serious question. Uh, I don't know if we give a satisfactory answer, but we do ask the question. We do talk some about it in this conversation. And one of the last, very last things that we do talk about um, is an unfortunate pitting uh, that we that we do find in some, uh, at least in apologetic circles. I think at least uh, your apologists, maybe maybe kind of old school apologetics uh, between Catholics and and Protestants more generally, uh, pitting. Well, uh, maybe not even between Catholics and and Protestants. Let me let me think about that. So I think that would actually be something like pitting. Um, uh, theists versus agnostics, or uh, Christians uh, versus non-Christians, um, and they could be uh, theists or atheists uh, in, in that non-Christian camp. Um, but uh, really, it kind of comes down to historians, um, uh, broadly conceived, and not all historians are atheistic, I want to say that up front. Um, this sort of pitting of the intellect and the inspiration of scripture against one another. Um, in some camps, it's actually it's actually put forward, um, and and this would be in your uh, your fundamentalist types of groups, uh, your evangelical uh, and and other evangelical groups. In Protestantism, they want to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, um, and I, I find that to be a difficult thing to talk about intelligently. Um, uh, if if we're going to take history seriously, and, and that's something I mentioned in in the episode, is both of those groups, uh, and just to lay them out real quick, the ones who want to hold on to inerrancy and therefore sacrifice some of the uh, the intellect, and those who want to hold on to the intellect and so sacrifice the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and by intellect, we mean something like um, the the uh, powers of human investigation that uh, uh, can read texts, can go and do archaeology, uh, can can use our uh, our reasoning abilities to to try and put these dots together. Uh, in a, a reasonable fashion um, uh, to tell something of history. Uh, well, some of the, sometimes that history seems to uh, point against the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and I, I don't know that that's the best way to put the opposition, but for Johnson's case, yeah, he ends up doing that and wants to find a middle way um, and, and so we do talk some about that in the episode as well. So if you're interested 
in uh, following up and, and trying to tie up some of these threads um, or in, in uh, continuing to think about some questions that have come up for you as you've been listening. Um, I hope you'll stick around for the rest of the episode. Um, uh, I'll be taking a little bit of a, well, I, over the summer, I guess I did take a little bit of a break from posting uh, podcast episodes. Uh, so I'll be thinking up uh, things that we can do next um, for podcast episodes to keep this conversation going, to make this a place where where people can listen uh, and, and find resources for um, digging into the great theological conversation that the church uh, has been having for uh, 2,000 years. And um, I find that conversation to be so compelling um, and engaging uh, and challenging and frustrating that it keeps coming uh, keeps me coming back for more uh, and digging deeper every time I come back uh, so hope you enjoy the episode we'll see you at the end oh I mean are there things that you would have you'd like to change if we were to do a class like this in the future just the way the class is set up or um, maybe have a a different kind of book um, one that's a little more accessible or that's arranged differently or uh, have the conversations work a little differently I mean I, I really am open to to suggestions or your impressions or I mean it, it can be pretty vague it doesn't have to be I've been thinking about this for the last you know seven weeks or something <laughs> it, it really can be an impression or, or something ideas that you have because I I want to get better as a teacher and um, and as a theologian as a communicator and so it really anything that that y'all have well i've had to work every sunday for the last however many years so when i retired this is the first chance i've gotten to come to adult education oh okay. sunday school so it was like wow i get to so i'm i'm happy you know because okay i have this is my first thing like this in, in many, many years. So, so when did you retire, I guess? Was it uh, just last year? Yeah, last year. Oh, okay. Year. So, okay. Uh, and then I get to, you know, I get to talk to people because I worked on, we worked on Sundays at mm -hmm. store open at 12. So yeah. we came to early church, uh, ran home, changed my clothes and went to work. Right. And uh, so this is just so nice. I, I mean, I get to have a Sunday uh -huh. yeah. with people. Yeah. So. yeah. So what what store did you work in? Oh, uh, Blooming Colors Nursery in Grapevine. Blooming Colors? Mm -hmm. It's a landscape nursery. Uh -huh. I thought it must have been Hobby Lobby or no. <laughs> no. Chick fil A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were closed. They're closed. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I always work weekends. Uh -huh. So, but anyway, I'm just okay. I'm so pleased to be here. I... Well, I'm glad this has been a pleasant experience for you then. Um, really my one of my main concerns is especially when i'm teaching is that theology and christian history and 
uh, biblical studies just become so dry to folks uh, that that's that's really my main concern. So that the fact that you have found this pleasant and challenging and exciting and um, that really that's a win for me. Um, you know, it, it's it's not like I'm trying to train professional theologians. I, I'm not even one myself. Um, so this is, it really is a win for me um, in that respect, just to make something of the, our common heritage, um, uh, kind of crack it open a little bit uh, so, that the, so that people have ways of getting into that um, and sort of, plundering the riches of the Christian tradition uh, and, and using that to enrich their, their life, uh, their intellectual life, their spiritual life, um, how, how they work and uh, how they engage people, the kinds of questions they start to ask about this or that political issue or uh, social issue or something like that. Um, there's a lot of a lot of resources, even just in the creed, for doing that kind of that kind of work, uh, and for for changing us. So, uh, I'm that makes me very glad to to hear that you've enjoyed this. I have too, and I hope that I hope you've seen that in me that I have enjoyed teaching. Um, so, got anything, Keith? Yeah, I... <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have asked him that. <laughs> opened a can well, of worms. No, I, I, no, I, but... I, I it, it's confusing because I had seen a score, and I've been to mass all of about. I was going to say two times. I don't know. Well, I think maybe only I've been to math once. Uh -huh. But anyway, according to this, despite what the high school English teacher says, Wikipedia is usually pretty reasonable. I agree, actually. It's not. <laughs> sure, it's cheating if you, you know. Right. If you're getting your report from it, but yeah. And the other thing is, if there's any question, you ever look at those talk pages, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, if the, if the moderator had shut it down, you'll immediately see if there's some controversy. Mm -hmm. it's anyway, usually it's it says pretty good the, at self-correcting, and yeah. I I appreciate that so much about Wikipedia. Uh, it says that it, this guy is a nominal Catholic. Well. He's Catholic, right? Yeah. It's just the translation that's used in the order of the Mass that's been approved by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's all singular, I believe, not we. Yeah. And I, I'm just having trouble reconciling his use of his emphasis on the corporate communal aspect of it when apparently 
most of the churches do like we do and as we believe, but apparently some of the Catholic ones, and also, and this hasn't got anything to do with the, this hasn't got anything to do with the, the course. I see there was something in here about the creed used by the Martama Syrian church. Do you remember where we saw that church? We were out driving around the other day and we saw a Martama church. You know, and I was like, what the heck is that? A Sy- it might have been a Syrian Orthodox Yeah, apparently it's church. some Arabic Christian mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, so Syrian but is yeah, I did, I'm dialect. curious, why is he, you know, what's what's going up with, and apparently in the past they have gone back and forth between the I and the we, is that, is that something that came out of Vatican II? I don't know. So on, on that issue, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, shooting from the hip. And in the dark, Uh, I would say um, one of the reasons why he's emphasizing the corporate aspect. So if we are going to translate it as we, which I think is more, um, more original across time to the tradition, uh, then he's trying to emphasize the, the corporate nature of the creed of Christian faith in order to combat uh, a kind of rampant radical individualism so that we get, that's the kind of thing uh, when you take some aspects of the enlightenment to their logical conclusion, that's the kind of thing you get. Uh, Radically autonomous individuals who can make their own rational decisions and are completely justified in doing so apart from any other influences. Um, well, we've learned in the last couple hundred years that that's not actually how humans make decisions anyway. Right. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons why he's trying to push back against that. Now, on the other hand, even if we say I, I'm compelled to say that we should interpret that as a corporate I, as as the body of Christ saying this in one voice, I believe. So even if we are to translate it with the singular instead of the, uh, and then say it in the liturgy with the singular instead of the plural, it's almost like the um, converse of the royal we. Yeah. We can think of it that way almost. Um, at least that's how I, I think of it. Um, so I, I don't I don't get too caught up. Um, I, I, I thought that was an appropriate emphasis when it came up. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that he overdid it because there's other ways, uh, other places in the creed where the... Uh, shall we say, the corporate nature uh, and purpose of the creed comes through. So the little phrase, uh, who for us and our salvation. Yeah. So even if we say, I believe, we get to that part 
of the creed for us and for our salvation. Um, and then later when we talk about the church, well, it's not, the church isn't an individual. It's a, it's a, it's a, a people. Um, so there are other ways of, of emphasizing the corporate nature and function and purpose of the creed other than just the little I, we distinction. Um, so again, shooting from the hip and in the dark, that's how I would kind of get at that um, without knowing the ins and outs of how that translation, ha that issue has been handled in the past. Yeah. My assumption is that it's at least when the Latin, uh, uh, the traditional Latin mass had been used predominantly, it was yeah. it was in the Latin plural, yeah, um, rather than in the singular. So that's just uh, uh, shall we say some theologizing from you know gun gunslinger theologizing, yeah. I should say. Um, so from, we can touch on a few other things from chapter eight before we jump to the last chapter where there are other questions that you had. Um, so I, I kind of want to open it up to you guys, uh, cause y'all weren't here last week. Rosie and I carried on a conversation for a little while about forgiveness of sins and, uh, mainly about forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. Um, but we didn't really talk a whole lot about the four classic marks of the yeah. church as their uh, so-called. I thought he did a good explanation of that. I was surprised, though, that the NA didn't address it. But, you know, when he's talking about all the sh shortcomings of the Catholic Church, why are you still a Catholic guy? You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I At some points, I think he... he straddles the line pretty well between flat out rebellion and appropriate critique. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so the, the thing that I, I think is important to remember is <clears throat> I have baggage about Martin Luther. I really don't care for Martin Luther, but by some strange accident of history, here I am in a Lutheran church, um, in part because, you know, I made friends with Evan, uh, and so we started coming here. We weren't going anywhere else at the time, so there's another reason. Yeah. I appreciate the liturgy, so there's another reason. Yeah. Um, so my, my issues with Martin Luther really kind of pale in comparison with the other benefits um, that I see in, in attending this particular congregation at this time. I would um, like to know what, what your issues are with Martin Luther. <laughs> uh, I think he's unhelpfully bombastic. Uh, there There's a time for critique, and then there's a time to pull back and actually have civil discourse, and I don't think he quite figured out when to have civil discourse. And, civil conflict you can you can disagree strongly with people and and not call them names 
I mean, I understand that was a, a common rhetorical uh, strategy in, uh, you know, 500 years ago. Uh, just as it is now, we call people names a lot. Um, and I don't, I don't really care for that. I don't think it's helpful. Um, and in that way, he actually kind of stands out in, in church history because the, the, the greatest theologians that we know from church history have not had that kind of temperament. Um, and the ones that have had that kind of temperament have become infamous for having that kind of temper temperament. Um, so that's my main issue. There are some other things theologically that I think, uh, that I don't really care for. Um, especially his anti-Semitism and a lot of his commentaries comes out strongly. Um, and again, it's part of his time. Uh, but at the same time, that's an issue I have with the church historically, at, uh, you know, across the board pretty much. So it's not, that's not particular to Martin Luther. Um, but even there, he was very bombastic in how he talked about the Jews. Um, um, I'll, I think I'll leave it there uh, okay. just as a kind of, uh, just as a brief, a, a brief response. Um, but uh, getting back to, to Luke Timothy Johnson, there are other points in the book, uh, you know, when he's not um, being helpfully critical. I, I think he verges over into um, being a little rash in in how he approaches issues. Um, so some, if uh, you read the the last chapter, Rosie, he mm -hmm. he talks strongly about the Marian dogmas. Um, the the Marian dogmas. Oh, yeah. um, and I thought part of his critique was appropriate, but I wasn't quite sure by the end of it whether he's holding it at arm's length or rejecting it. He's probably not rejecting it. He, he's tailored his language. So where it's, it's, you're not quite sure how, what his relationship is with the Marian dogmas, for example. Um, another example he uses is the particular structure that the Roman Catholic church has, um, sort of acculturated over time. Um, whether, whether or not the finer details of that structure uh, are legitimately defensible based on the creed. Prince, so he, his, his point of attack is mainly coming from the creed. But the creed uh, is it refrains from saying anything about how the church ought to be structured. So really his argument is an argument from silence because he's coming from the standpoint of the creed. And because the creed doesn't say anything, that's where he, he's coming with the, 
the critique against this sort of endless proliferation of structural elements to the church. Um, now, I think he would say some structure is necessary because any, any organism without structure uh, is, is going to dissipate. Um, it's like uh, the laws of entropy are accelerated in those instances when there is no formal structure. Um, if I could be so bold. Um, so I, uh, his relationship with Catholicism, and I mean, since he's a Roman Catholic, the, the, the Roman rite has been his tradition and that's mainly where he's critiquing. So it's not to say that he's lambasting all of Catholicism because there are the Byzantines and um, the Maronites and uh, these other uh, church bodies that are in communion with Rome. Yeah, how does how mm -hmm. does that work if you're uh, mm -hmm. if you're to, like the the if you if you the church, there are churches in, that are in communion with Rome, mm -hmm. but they celebrate an Orthodox and divine liturgy, right? Right. So, so, so does well, I, mean, I wouldn't say they're Orthodox. They, they still call it a divine liturgy, but okay. they wouldn't call themselves Orthodox. They would call themselves Catholic or Byzantine Catholics. Are they... Are they... In, Is a pope just a trusted advisor, or is he the boss? I mean, does he have any? He does have significant authority. Okay. Um, so they... how he compared with, like, say the the Ethiopians and the Coptic Church, or the Eritrean Church and the Coptic Church. You know, so I, I don't know about the relationships between those three, so I, I can't say. Well, I'm uh, just thinking like when when the Ethiopians pick a new pope to be pope of the Ethiopian Church, they got to get the pope of the Coptic Church to sign off on it because his title is Pope of Alexandria, Pope of all Africa. Oh, and so interesting. he's kind of like you know. Mm, you know, it's, right. I don't know. It's, it's be like one of those dreaded dotted lines on an organizational chart, you know. You don't <laughs> right, know, right. You don't know who's in charge. <laughs> yeah, there's some kind of tenuous relationship here, but you're not exactly Gotta sure how it works. Got to keep this happy. This guy happy yeah. too, you know. Right. No, I. Um, so in in those uh, respects, between the Eastern Catholics and uh, the uh, the Roman bishop, um, they do recognize his authority as the bishop of Rome, uh, um, as sitting in the see of Peter, yeah. um, as the, uh, 
the servants, the the servant to the servants of God. Do any of their prelates, higher ups, belong to the college of cardinals that pick the pope? I don't know about that, but when they do, um, so all bishops are priests. Um, all cardinals are bishops. Oh, okay. Right. And every Pope is a bishop. Yeah. Right. So there, there is this kind of leveling effect almost, right. uh, amongst the bishops, but then those bishops are responsible to, um, uh, say bishops of the bishops. So you'll have, um, say read just in America, you'll have bishops who occupy particular areas. I say occupy. Uh, they oversee various areas. So the bishop of the diocese of Fort Worth, uh, there's one bishop for that. And there's a bishop for the diocese of Dallas. Um, and then there's a bishop who oversees a region. Uh, and then you'll have the sort of American College of Bishops who will make decisions for right. the bishops who oversee the different regions and then uh, so on and so forth. Um across the globe. And that's kind of what your cardinals are. They, they, uh, oversee, um, higher, uh, levels, so to speak of organization. And then the, so, so the college of bishops that elect the, whichever Pope, um, they're all bishops. Um, so they're recognizing amongst themselves, um, somebody who is going to succeed the succeed Peter's successor, latest successor, um, in providing leadership and guidance for the church. And the Eastern Catholic churches recognize that process. Uh, so they recognize the authority of Peter C, uh, and it's S E E, um, just in, in case that's unfamiliar language, um, to you. Um, and really that's, that's one of the things that distinguishes them from, uh, so, uh, Bishop as it's translated, but that's a good point. That's like the, the somewhat unrelated, are you for Beach Street in Halton City? Uh, Beach? Yes. Did you notice how it's spelled? No. Is it B-E-A? Actually, the ocean. I'm right. Of, you know, the tree, I could see. The, the ocean, I don't get, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, who Middle knows? of Texas. Um, but... Is uh, it sea like vision? Yes, so it actually comes from... Uh, one of the ways to translate the word bishop uh, is as overseer. Oh, okay. So lots of other Protestant denominations that don't have bishops they use translations that, uh, of the, the Bible that say overseer. So that's, Ooh, that, that's got some unpleasant tones. <laughs> it does. Well, I mean, that, that's what it means. So episkopos is the word. It's a little Greek lesson here. This is the preposition um, over, 
and this is where we get our word like scope. Okay, sure. Telescope, periscope, yeah. um, to to get the the uh, like scope and sequence of a curriculum. Sorry, did I make it too cold for you? Okay. Uh, so that's what that's what this means uh, is overseer. But um, very early on, that there's a particular role that the episcopos plays, and that was has become called the bishop. Um, so bishop and overseer are the exact same word in in Greek. Um, I don't know about Latin. I haven't looked it up. Uh, so when <coughs> when we talk about a bishop's see, that's what this is talking about, because they'll they they sit on a chair. So so for the successor of Peter, sits in Peter's chair. There there's lots of um, connections with uh, a throne. Sometimes it'll actually be called the papal throne is because it's a big chair mm -hmm. and that chair is situated in such a way as to oversee what's happening in the kingdom. That's usually why uh, uh, thrones are elevated in uh, uh, palace uh, courts. The throne's elevated. Why? So that the king can see what's happening. Uh, well, that's that's kind of how bishop and overseer gets its name. So the uh, Peter's see is the the vantage point where Peter can look out over the flock and see where there's trouble. Um, just as a, a quick little uh, kind of where we get that word from. So, uh, was there anything else in chapter eight that you wanted to to touch on? Because there's a lot in chapter eight. And I, I, I like you, Keith. I really appreciated um, his discussion of the four marks of the church. Uh, I thought it was pretty even-handed. Um, Let's see. Sure, this translation difference between, you know, Greek on the one hand, Latin, this and the thing of the <laughs> Aramaic and the Hebrew, it, uh -huh. it, it reminds me of the guys I remember, a long time ago, filled up the class. Internet wasn't very well developed at the time, and I bought a book of Concord from Amazon. Mm -hmm. And in the book of Concord, the and it was fairly current version. You know that they, they frequently have they have the German version of what Martin Luther said. And then the Latin version that they sent to the Holy Roman Emperor. Okay. 
and they have the English translations for each. Hmm. Well, the English translations aren't the same. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, wait a minute, you know, what's the deal, you know? Are you telling the boss is Latin one thing and you're telling your people in German another? Or is it, you know, translation different? I guess it just it drives home the point that it's really hard to, you know, convey some of these concepts. And I mean, you know, yeah. Bishop. Bishop would fly in a lot of places. Man, overseer would not, you know. Oh, yeah, totally. You Especially know, if the... you tried overseer in a, you know, black Baptist group, that would not be popular, you know. Or they would just um, call him elder. Yeah. Right. Um, so an elder, an overseer. So elder actually comes from uh, the word uh, where we get uh, presbyter, Pres- presbyteros. Um, uh, but in, in some respects, they're, they're equivalent in other respects, not so much. That, that's a matter of debate. Um, as apostle, what does that, what does that mean? Uh, an apostle is, uh, an emissary, basically an ambassador. Um, that's all. There's no prophetic anything associated with it. Uh, in in some respects, uh, there there is a connection there. Um, <clears throat> but it's like um, something like a herald um, or a, a, an official royal messenger. Um, and sometimes that's how the prophets are described and other times they're, they're not talked about that way. Um, but I haven't, I haven't done a whole lot with apostle to see how that, to, to say much more than that, how it, how it fits in and why it's different, uh, from say bishop or presbyter or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, I was I was struck a little bit when I was reading this again. Um, he talks about the church. This is and uh, two fifty five. He talks about the church as a, in his words, critical theological concept. Well, I've um, through this course I've changed that slightly to uh, critical theological judgment and, and recalling the distinction between concepts and judgments that we can render the same judgment in different conceptual terms. Um, so the church is a critical theological judgment um, that it is that the church exists, um, or at least that the, the creed and the New Testament insist that the church exists, um, runs counter to claims that want to relativize the the role and function of the church uh, who want to uh, in some respects it would be similar to the desire to limit the power of government 
uh, say here in America or in, in Britain, um, uh, I'd say probably especially in America, given its unique governmental structure in world history anyway, um, they wanted to limit the powers of government um, by various checks and balances. Uh, certain decisions can only be made by certain processes of this body making a decision, then it goes to this body, and then it comes to this body, and then it kind of comes back around. <clears throat> um, either, either that extreme limitation of the powers of government or the dissolution or a dissolution of um, any significant structure at all. Um, the, the creed, anyway, pushes against that impulse to insist that the church exists in some form. And that's kind of where he, he comes back in, in the last chapter, um, or the final chapter, I should say, talking about um, at least uh, Roman Catholicism's uh, almost obsession with a very particular ultra rigid, in his opinion, form of church structure. Um, that would be sort of the uh, swinging to the opposite extreme, in his opinion. Um, but it stands that um, despite where you land on that continuum, um, whether complete dissolution uh, on one extreme or um, uh, this sort of complete ossification um, uh, of, a, of a very particular rigid structure. Uh, and anywhere in between, the fact that the church exists and that the church has been uh, chosen as the principal means of God's, uh, I say principal, one of the principal means of God's uh, exercising his power and presence in the world um, pushes those extremes. It keeps them at arm's length because there has to be some structure, but it can't turn into um, something that actually cripples uh, the motion of this body. And so in that way, he, he's talking about the, the church as a critical theological judgment, um, that it actually provides a norm for how we think about the church, and especially these marks that he goes on to talk about, that the church is one, that the church is holy, uh, that it's Catholic, and that it's apostolic. Um, that it's apostolic, you know, refers specifically to its historical continuity with the church that Jesus founded through the apostles. Um, that it's Catholic that uh, refers principally to the idea that this is the church found everywhere. <clears throat> 
at all times. Um, that the church is holy. And, and he calls all of these marks ideals. Uh, I think in some respects that's helpful. But in another respect, to idealize something is almost to make it unreal. So I, I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that that yet how he's how he talks about the these marks of the church as ideals um in some respects i i can get behind it because there's something uh these exemplify the ultimate telos of the church this is what the church is striving for that's his goal its aim and if we're talking about an ideal in that sense then then sure but then, on the other hand, the, the danger is, I think, to talk about the church and these marks of the church characteristics as ideal characteristics. Well, that's something that the church can never live up to um, in this world. Um, and so there comes in this uh, aspect of, of strange limitation I think that he's injected there with, with the idea of these marks as ideals. Um, but anyway, uh, it's helpful perhaps most with the marks of holiness and oneness. Uh, that these are ideals. Ideals that Christians have failed time and again to live up to. Um, in part because despite this ideal of, of the oneness of the church, it has continually fallen into division and uh, been broken to pieces. And so it's, it's hard to see how the church is actually one because of these divisions, whether it be uh, divisions because of cultural differences or divisions because of, uh, uh, you know, uh, associated or related differences in language or divisions based on theological emphasis. Um, different groups uh, insisting on a particular take on this or that theological issue. Um, and then the holiness of the church being an ideal um, is understandable in part because uh, humans are the ones who make up the church and humans are fallen creatures who are limited and finite and make mistakes and are beset by the the whims of desire and of passion and so we make unholy decisions that then uh, corrupt or damage our, our witness as a people marked out to to offer on the one hand uh, a unique vision for the world as a unique people of God, and on the other hand, to challenge by that same vision, to challenge the world um, 
to challenge the the world's uh, construals of how humans ought to live. Um, what a good life actually looks like. That that's in part what Greek philosophy, anyway, in in large part, had been about since its very beginning. What is it that makes a life good, worth living? Um, so some things came out of that: friendship, citizenship. Um, well, what makes good friendship? And so you start thinking about that. Well, that's where philosophy comes from. Uh, what makes for good citizenship? Well, let's think about what what a good or what they think a good political structure or organization should look like. Um, how how can we arrange uh, society? How can we how can we arrange our individual parts? to make human flourishing possible. Um, so, I mean, even, even there, that's one of the things that, that Christian theology has, uh, I think appropriately picked up from, from philosophy. Um, but it's sort of taken it up into a new register so that God is the one who's, who's offering us the vision of what, it is to live a good life. And so it's our task not to invent that vision, but to, to find ways to implement that vision um, in us. It's, it's being offered to us uh, through the transformation of the spirit so that we can uh, offer that as a gift to others. So that's part of the, the holiness of the church, that the, there is some kind of something unique uh, that sets the church apart. Well, that's also related to the mark of the church as being one. There's something unique uh, that, that there is only one church. It's unique in that respect. Um, but that it's also unified. Uh, is also a part, a unique aspect of the church. Um, well, and those have been challenged because when, when the one church gets divided, well, now it doesn't seem like there's only one church. And so it now no longer seems unique. So that could challenge the holiness of the church. Well, now that the oneness has been compromised, its ability to faithfully live out the vision that God has, um, say, offered the church or given to the church, which we might say um, that vision as a revelation. To have something revealed is to see something without the veil. So vision and, and revelation kind of go hand in hand uh, in that respect. So God offering his people a vision of how the world um, not only could be, but will be in the end. Um, if you have all of these different groups saying that they're Christian, that they have a purchase on that vision, uh, that they're implementing it correctly, uh, well, that seems to, 
to contradict the claim that the church is one and that it's holy uh, and that it's Catholic because then you have different these different groups in different places making different claims about how they're implementing the revelation of God. And so you can you can kind of see how all these marks are interrelated. Um, and then the you know the apostolic uh, mark of the church is then called into question. Well, then if you have all these different churches, these different groups in different places, all claiming to have some kind of purchase on the revelation of God, the vision of life for the world, uh, both now and in the future, then how do you account for the historical continuity of the church? Who's to say that this or that particular group has, uh, say, an unbroken chain, an unbroken relationship historically with the apostolic church, the church that, that Jesus established um well those are all those issues sort of domino together and they compound each other um so those are some of the issues uh i tried to sum those up a little bit and not get too stuck uh in them but uh let's see Ah, uh, yeah, maybe this will be a way to get on from this part. Um, so why why wouldn't anyone uh, just leave the church if it seems so splintered and not particularly holy and not particularly Catholic and not particularly apostolic? Um, why Why would anyone just not give up on it? Um, I'll offer that question to y'all, uh, given at least what you, you've read or might remember from the chapter and from your own thinking, why would, why wouldn't we just leave? We're a family, I think. Hmm. There's some kind of continuity. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if maybe the historical particulars of continuity are muddled. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I can only, from my own memory, I can only account back a few generations of my own family. Well, it's not to say I don't have relatives further back. Uh, and that they, you know, come from this or that place. It's just to say that I can't, from my own memory, account for that. You know, there's other people in my family who are alive, who've done a lot more of that thinking. And in their memory, they can account for, for those historical connections. Uh, so there, there is an aspect perhaps that the, the church is greater than the sum of its parts. 
which I think is, in, is pretty intuitive. Um, even if that part of the church doesn't come across as a classical mark of the church. I think that's a really good insight uh, that we are a family in some genuine respect. Uh, and to, to give up on that family and to quit and go somewhere else is to, to sever yourself from a genuine uh, identity. Uh, I, I don't know if y'all uh, would feel that way, but that seems to be how I would. Uh, and we had actually talked about this a little while ago. Uh, several weeks, I think, to to be exiled is a kind of death. Um, so in the prodigal son, the, that parable, uh, the, uh, I say the, the prodigal son, uh, really it's the parable of the, the prodigal father, because he's the one who gives everything away, um, really. So the, the son who wastes everything, well, yeah, we'll put it that way. The son who wastes everything, uh, he, he undergoes a kind of death. And so when he returns, my son was dead and is alive again. Um, so when we, when we leave a family uh, for petty reasons or for, for whatever reason, there is a kind of death there. And so we're, we're kind of afloat in the world without an anchor, some kind of genuine anchor. And so we feel like we might need to reinvent ourselves. Uh, it's a typical trope in the last couple of decades. Um, why else might we not just leave the church? If it's got all these issues, I mean, not just things that we're dealing with in the moment, but deep-seated historical issues. <laughs> I, I want to be baptized. I want to be confirmed. I want to be married. I want to be buried in, the, in my church. <laughs> but what, uh, what, what do you think makes you stick around? My heritage, partly. Okay. You know, been born Lutheran, always Lutheran. Uh, yeah. Uh, good leadership here. Mm. That, that's an interesting point, uh, I think. Despite human failures, there are glimmers of, uh, like you said, good leadership, uh, where some humans have found it possible in some limited respect to embody the unity of the church so that some congregations anyway seem particularly well fitted, knitted together, um, sometimes because of good leadership, sometimes for other reasons, but it's usually for reasons related to good leadership. 
which means then that you're you're embodying some some genuine aspect of the apostolicity of the church. That the the kind of church that the apostles bequeathed to the next generation, the leaders that they trained, and that they trained after them, and that they trained after them. Uh, good leaders embody that kind of heritage, um, that kind of historical continuity, so that it helps provide over the course of a whole person's life. You know, like you were saying, you were baptized, confirmed, married, buried, you know, all, a whole person's life. Good leadership provides a kind of continuity through those aspects. And so the, the good leadership of the church isn't reducible to that one person or those two or three people. Right. It's it's part of the very fabric of the church's existence. So, again, in that part, in, in that respect, the the. The the whole of the church's leadership or the whole of the church's continuity is greater than just the sum of its parts. Sort of bumps up a notch a little bit. And so the apostolicity. Um, and maybe that's what he's trying to get at uh, when he's talking about these marks of the church as ideals. That these little uh, glimmers of the church's unity, of its oneness, of its Catholicity, of its, of its being everywhere, of its apostolicity, of its historical, historical rootedness in... Uh, uh, engaging, receiving, and, and extending the revelation of God, um, principally in Christ. So when, when we preach the gospel, we're preaching the revelation of God in Christ. Um, it, it's gathering all of those up uh, in such a way that when we, we find it embodied in uh, a congregation in a unique way or in, in a in the leadership that continues, uh, we find there something compelling. Uh, so that, I mean, we recognize that the grass isn't greener on the other side or on any other side. The grass is brown everywhere, pretty much, you know. Um, but that there's something about, uh, in, in the case you mentioned, Rosie, something about the leadership of the church that helps provide that continuity. And as Virginia mentioned, this is family. Our, our church mm -hmm. is our family. Who do we go to when we're, when we have problems, right. you know, our, our church supports us too. Right. Um, I guess most of my, most of my best friends are members of this church. Yeah, friends that you've made and lived with mm -hmm. and talked For with and cried many, with. Many years. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Which also speaks to the unity of the church. Yeah. Right? You, you become united with each other in life and in death, uh, in sickness and in health. So we see then, even in those words from, uh, from the marriage rite, 
um, the image that uh, Paul will talk about uh, marriage as an uh, an emblem, a sign of the church and Christ. So that the the marriage vows are the vows are the kind they're they're on the same level as the kinds of vows we take in baptism. And when we reaffirm those vows in baptism, whenever another, whenever somebody else is baptized, we have, we reaffirm those vows, so to speak. Um, and then confirmation again. Right, right. Um, speaks to and embodies the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, the the uniqueness of this particular form of life, holiness. Um, and then it's, it's outflowing how that particular form of life shapes the rest of our life, how we treat other people, how we engage <clears throat> in the community, um, those kinds of things. So we've talked about the marks, um, and some of our conversation from Wednesday uh, covers, and what we recorded anyway, covers baptism and the forgiveness of sins. So if you wanted some more on, on that, it's, it will be in the recording. Um, I don't know that we talked a whole lot about the resurrection and life of the world to come, but I, I do want to pass on to uh, some parts of the, the last chapter see here so really as a whole i mean and he, and he says this near the end he he's not under the illusion that that some kind of um what he calls also later some kind of creedal renewal is going to be the the panacea that fixes all of our problems but he thinks uh, an enhanced emphasis uh, or increased attention, I think, is something he's, he says. Um, more serious attention on the creed can actually help us uh, in various ways that we fail to live up to the marks of the church. Uh, that we uh, help us when we fail to recognize the implications of the incarnation or of the Holy Spirit's speaking through the prophets. Um, so, <clears throat> go ahead. Go ahead. Page uh, 307, <clears throat> I did not understand the last one, two, five sentences which starts, there seems to be little middle ground between the position that demands the sacrifice of the intellect to save the inspiration and inerrancy of the text and mm -hmm. the position that demands the sacrifice of inerrancy and inspiration to save the intellect. I got lost on that. <laughs> All right. So he's basically in, in a lot of this to try and map the ground he will often take two extreme responses and try and contrast them in some respects 
Um, so as it relates to um, specifically the reading of scripture. So in, in this part, and the, the paragraph he's just started talking about, how the creed functions as a guide for reading scripture. Um, so when he's talking about the intellect in the, those last few lines, uh, he's talking about um, uh, the rational ability to uh, undertake historical investigations, to undertake uh, archaeological investigations, and the fact that some of those investigations have come to be come into tension with what scripture says on various historical points. So the, the details of this or that historical ruler or the details, the geographical details of this or that place uh, that are described in Old and New Testaments. So what he's what he's saying here is, OK, uh, some some people have taken the position that they want to preserve the inerrancy of Scripture. So that it has basically no historical errors. Uh, and so they sacrifice the intellect, the re the the ability of our human capacity to undertake historical investigation. Like the results, maybe, of the investigation. Yeah, they, they want they want to um, uh, preserve the inerrancy of Scripture, mm -hmm. and so its inspiration and authority mm -hmm. over and against uh, some kind some kind of historical critical uh, investigation uh, that would challenge the historical uh, truthfulness of this or that part. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other position is just the reverse that some, some folks take the position of uh, only validating the intellect, uh, the rational capacity of humans to undertake historical, geographic, archeological research uh, uh, to the sacrifice of scriptural inerrancy uh, or inspiration or authority. So that's the kind of play that he's, I say play, that's the kind of contrast that he's drawing between these two groups. That one is sacrificing our rational capacity uh, for the authority of scripture or the inerrancy of scripture as he puts it. And the other group is sacrificing uh, the inerrancy of scripture for our rational capacities. Um, now, I think he's trying to bring that contrast up so that it's sharp, so that he can try and find a middle way, uh, so that we can, in some respect, have our cake and eat it too. Um, so he's not saying either one of them are right. Uh, I mean, that's right. He, he will go on to critique both of them. And he's, he says, actually, that what they do actually have in common is this, um, uh, I think he calls it an inordinate preoccupation with history. Strangely. Uh -huh. But that's actually what they have in common. They don't have much else in common, but they have this strange preoccupation with history. 
And so that, that odd preoccupation with history actually distorts both of their positions. So, because that's, because that's an issue, this historical accuracy or this historical veracity or this historical, uh, error, you know, from the other side, um, if that's what's really at issue, then they've actually distorted the whole, the whole issue. So he'll talk about, um, the need for, uh, for a creedal, a kind of creedal renewal, uh, the need for, uh, emphasizing what he has earlier called the myth of, of the, the Christian story or the Christian myth. Um, and when we're talking about myth, we're talking about a, a kind of a particular way of seeing how the world works. So it, it's not that it's untrue, right? That it's, that it doesn't speak, um, to the, the sort of truest parts of our existence. Um, but that it's not doing it in a way that's like a, like a scientific textbook. Um, so that, for example, to read the creation accounts in Genesis, like some kind of scientific uh, textbook, is actually to distort both what a scientific textbook is and what the biblical accounts are trying to do. The, the biblical accounts aren't trying to be rigorously scientific in the modern sense. Well, they're trying you, to communicate something else. And you have to you have to be reading it at a pretty superficial right. level too, because right. Genesis 2 says, hey, here's another old story about how the world was created. And right. the details don't jive. And it's like, hello, you know, what's going on here? That's right. I mean the order is different in this story, you know. That's right. Which which means I mean, I think this is where you're going, that there's got to be something else going on. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, Part of the problem is, though, the people that could most benefit from that broader, more true definition of mythology, they don't, you know, they hear myth and they can call it a lie and, you know. Right. And that's, you know, they want to, yeah. you know, ride you out of town on a rail. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's also interesting that if you find yourself in in some strange city on Sunday, and there are church only a few churches within walking distance, the one I would not want to go in would be a church that had anything about apostolic in its name. Because would that be a cult of the worst kind? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. Catholics would be okay, you know. If it was your church of the holy, whatever, that would be all right. If it was the holy the church, I don't know. Right, right. But those apostolic guys, you know. Oh boy. Is, is this your book? No, that's just that all right. Well, I hope you enjoy reading the last chapter then. Uh, I know we talked about it without you having had some background on it. Um, but in a lot of ways, he's he's drawing up those threads that he's already already talked about. Um,
Some of it, I think, is unnecessarily polemical, uh, especially toward the end. Um, but you know, that's my own <laughs> my own critique of of uh, his book. So I'll have to go look up polemical. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay, thanks for stopping me. It's He's slipping into uh, his, um, I don't think he would say this, but since we already talked about Luther being bombastic and brash, and uh, I think he's slipping into some of that kind of temperament. So when I, when I say polemical, he's being unduly uh, harsh and critical, um, almost saying stuff just to say it. I don't think that's quite right, but you know, it almost feels like, well, that was a little... Yeah, a little harsh, um, and maybe you'll agree with it. I don't know. I I thought some of it was a little well, harsh. Well, it's, it's also that it's reminiscent of that Mark Twain quip about if I'd had more time, I would have wrote a shorter letter. Yes. As we, get, as we get to the end, and there's less and less creative to talk about. He seems to need more and more words to do it. Right. No, that's funny. Well, that's actually one of the, the kind of the last thing he talks about is, uh, ironically enough, the simplicity of the creed is, um, you know, it has in some respects very little to say, uh, but in its details is sort of packed so full yeah. that that you can you can dig down deep um, and that it, it refrains from saying certain things. Um, and that, that refraining or that omission actually opens up a lot of our ability to reflect on how the church ought to look, how the, the sacraments of the church, how they actually shape human character, uh, what these things about the son and the Holy spirit, um, how they actually impact how it is we live, um, Creed's silent on a lot of that stuff uh, and holds back. But what's packed into what it does say opens up a kind of, um, opens up the possibility of, of actually using our brains uh, instead of shutting them down, um, using our intellect and our, our capacities to speak and think theologically and to act theologically. Um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of how he wraps it up. I, I think that's at least for our last conversation, that a good way to wrap it up anyway. Creed opens up a lot more questions than it answers kind of, <laughs> in, a, in a way. So, all right. Thanks for sticking a few minutes later. Um, well, thank you glad we could wrap it up. Everything. I, I have, yeah. I appreciate this. So much. Yeah. It's stretching. I've enjoyed it. So we'll, we'll do another one later. All right. If you have made it this far in the episode, thanks so much for sticking around. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope you have enjoyed the uh, class, uh, the whole series of, of uh, episodes that have been the, the class recordings. Uh, if you have enjoyed them, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing, uh, reviewing, and rating the podcast. That helps uh, other people find us, um, and it uh, makes me uh, feel good too. I mean, if you if you have enjoyed 
um, and have found these these classes meaningful um, yeah, as you are exploring uh, the great conversation. You're diving into the the church's tradition, um, uh, the theological uh, grammatical tradition uh, that is necessary for us to articulate our faith uh, as we confess the faith with the creed and as we confess the faith in prayer and in worship uh, and uh, as we confess the faith as we live uh, it with our lives. Uh, so if you have found these episodes meaningful in those regards, please consider doing those things to help us out. And by us, I mean me. Uh, there's nobody else. It's just me. Um, uh, in the future, I do hope to have some friends on. Um, it's going to be small. They're going to be my friends, my pals, uh, the people that I've I've come to uh, love deeply um, and uh, argue with on occasion. And um, so if you uh, want to stick around for those, uh, please do so, hoping that can get started up in the next month or so uh, after we have some, some um, a little bit more of a break and some conversations uh, with friends, and we'll get those lined up for you. Um, they might be topical, but they might also be over readings where we read a text and try and summarize some of the main points and why that text matters. Uh, it might be a primary text, it might be a secondary text. Um, uh, and if, if you want some of that distinction between primary and secondary texts, uh, you can go check out my blog, uh, the website that I have. Um, haven't written on in a while, uh, but hope to also hope to do that soon. Uh, and trying to get some things organized for me to be able to do that. Um, organized in my own life, so I carve out some writing time uh, to do that. I've, I've uh, tried to keep some reading time, but I haven't always carved out some writing time uh, to do that. So I, ho I hope to have something um, uh, newish, uh, somewhat regularly on the podcast or on, on the blog site. Um, and that is uh, hermeneuticaetc.wordpress.com. Uh, and the, uh, the Christian Toolbox page uh, there will give you some more resources uh, if you want to dig into the Christian theological tradition uh, and um, the riches that it has to offer uh, your your thinking and your living uh, because we have to think in order to live uh, and there's no one better to think with than the the mind the collective mind of the church um, uh, is an immense amount of wisdom um, guided by the spirit uh, and the mind of Christ. Uh, uh, you know, there's still human beings. Uh, there's still fallible human beings, but God has, uh, at least the Christian uh, church has confessed, is in the business of using fallible human instruments uh, to to bring about his glory, to bring about um, the the transformation of lives and uh, the, the the transformation of cultures um, into to more just societies, um, into more holy societies, uh, the transformation of individuals into holy people, um, and the church 
being the the bark, uh, the the boat, um, which cross uh, which the cross of Christ has formed. Um, so, if you are uh, interested, um, that was waxing eloquent. If you're interested in in learning more and diving into the great tradition uh, beyond this uh, class that I've been uh, that I had done on the creed, uh, then head over there to my blog, and you'll find that Christian toolbox page. Um, I think that's all. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope uh, again this has been meaningful for you. If it has been, stick around and share this with all your friends and family and uh, anybody you think will listen. Uh, I think that's all. All right. Well, this has been Hermeneutica Etc., where we talk about theology, philosophy, and so forth. I've been your host, Jonathan Dansby, and I'll be in your ears next time.